Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Freelancer Show. This week on your panel, we have Brooks Forsyth. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A quick shout out, I just published a book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Of course, I don't really go into freelancing in that one, so maybe it's not super applicable here. But anyway, we're kind of rebooting this show. We had some turnover with our hosts. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and let Brooks introduce himself real quick. And then I'll just go ahead and remind you all who I am because I've been on this show before. Um, go ahead, Brooks. Why don't you just tell us who you are, what your uh, programming and uh, freelancing experience is, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so um, I'm Brooks Forsyth. I live in uh, Simsbury, Connecticut, uh, which is just north of Hartford, pretty close to Bradley International Airport if you're uh, flying through. Programming, I focus mostly on Angular and Ionic development. Been doing that for the past four or five-ish years. Um, been um, mostly doing, working for large uh, consulting corporations like Cognizant, Accenture, um, type like those. Uh, been um, Lately, been doing some more independent freelancing, I guess you could say. Uh, mm -hmm. Been doing some... I'm still working. I have one large contract with a large Accenture type company um, and then doing some moonlighting with a startup um, and helping them get their POC or MVP going. So yeah, that's, nice. uh, that's me from 5,000 feet above, I guess. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Nice. And for those that uh, I haven't been on this show for quite a long time, actually, um, but we started this show back in 2012. And uh, at that time, I was freelancing. I did freelance work for about six years. And then um, in 2017, I think it was, um, wound up going full time on the podcast. And I still do the occasional project, usually not a contract. Usually I'm on the other end now. I'm hiring contractors. But yeah, uh, I, I have a lot of experience as a freelance developer or a contract developer. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to bring it to bear. I also have a lot more experience now in the kind of digital marketing, content marketing arena. And so we may go into some of that in some of these shows as well. So yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm coming from with this. And uh, yeah, so uh, Brooks and I were talking and we were talking a little bit about uh, doing a topic around how to get into uh, freelancing. And I'm curious, Brooks, it sounds like you've kind of um, either worked for contract companies or done some contracting on your own. I'm, I'm wondering what, how they compare, right? Working for a big contract firm versus, you know, working as a, just a regular contractor. I, I actually worked for a contract firm as my first job. 
but they were rather small. So not at the level that you're talking. Yeah. So like working at someplace like Cognizant, um, you know, there's more, you're more just, uh, I mean, you, you're in a huge corporation, so you get that, you know, I'm just a number turning the, turning the wrenches. I mean, like, for example, uh, Cognizant, I talked to my boss like twice and I was there for a year and a half ish. Like the person who was in charge of my checks. Um, right. But usually you're embedded in a large organization. Um, you know, being where I am, we have a lot of insurance companies in the area. So um, you're just uh, embedded in with uh, other, um, either other contractors from other large corporations or, um, or employees of, of the company. The, the difference uh, between being doing more of your on your own, um, there's a lot more freedom when, when you're, you know, you have that direct uh, 1099 or corp to corp. Right. So that is definitely a plus. I mean, and, and you get paid for how many, well, it depends how you're getting paid, but either per project or, or hourly, if you're getting paid hourly and you work 60 hours, it's great to be able to kind of justify the time away from family for the extra 20 hours of pay. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas if you're usually on these large corporations, they try to avoid doing a, a contract, an hourly contract for that reason. Um, so that's, they, they want you W2. Uh, at least that's been my experience. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more flexibility, but at the same time, you're, you're held at a higher, um, you're more of an expert when you're doing it on your own. So you have to have the skills to go along with that or at least portray you have the skills to go along with that. Um, right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, my experience uh, being a, a 1099 contractor was that, yeah, some folks, they expected you to be the expert and some folks, they just wanted you to be another pair of hands writing code on their team. Yeah. And so if you are the second kind, then it sounds like, you know, it's more or less the same as what you're talking about there where, you know, they just want you to be capable of writing code. In the other case, yeah, a lot of times I'd wind up working for a startup where I was the only technical person they ever talked to. And so then it was basically, yeah, I had to have the expertise to be able to guide them in some of their other technical decisions that weren't specifically my wheelhouse, right? They hired me as a Rails developer and I had to know how to explain to them, okay, well, you're probably going to want to find a, you know, a data center or uh, you know, a server provider or whatever in the cloud that does these kinds of things. And you're going to want to make sure it scales these ways and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've experienced that a little bit with, uh, the moonlighting startup that I've, you know, um, been working with or who I've been doing some moonlighting with just like they've, they started using flutter and they, I guess, regret that decision, but the, the technical people on the project are all very new developers, you know, mm -hmm. which I understand because you're a startup and you're bootstrapping and you can't afford to pay you know, unless you have funding. Right. So you can't afford senior developers. So just like explaining the differences between flutter and Ionic and react native and mm -hmm. native, I, I've done it like 10 times in the last week, just to different non-technical people and try to get them to pick one or whatever's going to, help them get the MVP out the quickest. Right. So with moonlighting, I mean, that's another angle on freelancing as well, that 
I didn't ever do much of. I think I had like one contract while I was full-time employed. Yeah. It was really, really, really part-time. Yeah, this is um, – so I'm like technically a W-2 again with uh, a company like Cognizant or Accenture. Um, and um, trying – I sort of back it up a bit, I guess. I was doing, you know, 1099 um, contracting for um, – for building Ionic apps and I had one long project and I was getting paid hourly and that was great. And that project wrapped up. So I took this uh, remote position, it's supposed to be fully remote, but I have to go to Boston every once in a while. Um, I took this remote position, they matched my hourly uh, wage and salary, right? So I thought, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, I'll work, but I'm doing a lot more hours. Um, so, uh, you know, that kind of hurts, but whatever. Um, so I'm trying to get back more into doing the 1099 real contract project-based or hourly. Um, and so that's why I started doing Moonlighting. I got the startup um, Moonlighting contract just through, it was actually Upwork, but I didn't even apply. They had some contact info on there. And I mm -hmm. just, I linked in the guy and messaged him and um, avoided the Upwork, which I think helped me. I'm curious, you said you hire, um, you know, freelancers right now. Where do you find them? Where are you looking for them? Or is it word of mouth or? So I have hired, and, and some of the other, like I've hired code contractors and I've hired other contractors, right? So yeah. I, I'll kind of run the gamut because I know that some people listen to this show are not programmers. Yeah, um, that's true. So my production manager I found through Upwork and we we worked um, for a while through Upwork and then eventually it just, you know, Upwork was kind of a pain to deal with at, at some level. So eventually we just, you know, we worked it out so that we could just pull out of Upwork. And and I don't know what all the logistics are as far as what you're supposed to do, but yeah, I paid her on there for a year or so before we moved. So they, they made their money, right? Yeah, they made their money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she's, she's pretty much full time working on devchat.tv now. Um, and so that, that's worked out. Right. And so the initial find was on Upwork, but that's not where we ended. I also hired two, um, podcast editors and the first one I found, I, I think I just put out there on the internet somewhere that I was looking for, um, editors and the one editor that I've got, he, he listened to some of the shows cause he was learning how to program. And so he, he edits a bunch of the shows. The other one I found through local classifieds. And so I just put out there that I was looking for a podcast editor part-time and this other guy applied and, you know, I wound up hiring him. And so that's, that's where they came from. I do have a part-time developer working on some stuff too for the podcast um, management and automation. And if I remember right, I sent an email to the mailing list and said that I was looking for someone and he responded. And then I have a handful of people writing show notes and other work. And I found one of them's my sister. So, um, and I don't remember exactly how that turned out. I think she was looking for something part-time she could do from home. And so I left it up to the production manager. I said, I just, I told both of them, I was like, look, I was like, I am not going to punish you if you don't hire her. And, and you know, I'm not going to side with you because you're my sister. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, what, whatever, whatever is said is the way it goes. Right. And, uh, that, that's been fine. She had a friend from high school, I think that she helped me find. So that was word of mouth. And then the other two, I think one came through the mailing list again when I was hiring. And the last one, I think we found her through Upwork, but I'm not, I'm not confident of that because I think we've been paying her directly the whole time. And so I don't, I don't know that I ever paid her through Upwork. So I'm trying to think how we found her, but anyway, so yeah, so that's kind of how we found people. Um, The problem with Upwork though, that I found is that the skill sets vary a ton. And the other issue that you have is that the pay requirements vary a ton and the two don't correlate, right? So if you're going to pay more, you would think that generally you're going to get better work. And I've never found that to be consistently the case with the people I've hired off of Upwork. Do you think that's just the people they attract or do you think that's... I think think a lot of it boils down to, A, you have people from different countries that you can hire. Yeah. Right. And so the economies are different, right? And so that's that messes with the price to value correlation, right? Yeah. And then the other issue that comes in is that you get a lot more people that are kind of willing to work from home at any price. And so you that also messes with it a little bit because some people are actually trying to pay the bills and other folks are just trying to make a little bit of supplemental money. Yeah. So they'll charge less even though they're more competent. And it's hard yeah. to know which ones are which. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I um I do some writing uh for a technical blog. Just like I get a hundred dollars a article, mm-hmm. um, and that's just perfect for what it is because one gets my name out there a little more, right? Which is good. But you know, I I I spend a lot of time on the articles and the tutorials, but I'm I'm also learning while doing it. You know, making sure right. I actually know what I'm talking about. So there's pluses all around. I but that's like the only thing that I've gone through Upwork and stayed with Upwork. And um, there is some comfort. I believe they, like I get the um, blog owner funds my next article before I write it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think if I handed him crap, he could say, don't give it to Brooks, but I don't have to worry as much about being paid, I guess, or in theory. I don't know if that's always true, but yeah. The other thing with Upwork is um, they have the U.S. only switch when you're searching for positions, which I guess is Mm -hmm. nice if if people only want to work with other people in the U.S., which I don't know. I find there's a lot less positions, but I I guess it's good to know you're in the same time zone. Yeah. One thing I've I've run into with that, with like the U.S. folks, because my entire team, except for one editor and two of the show notes writers are all outside of the U S. Yeah. And one thing that I ran into, I think, I think it was on Friday. Um, I got a bunch of stuff in the mail from, from the state of Utah because one of my contractors, one of my editors, uh, he just lost his job. They actually closed up the company. Um, And uh, so he filed for unemployment, right? And when he filed, he had to disclose that he was getting income from me. And so the state sent me a bunch of paperwork, right? (laughs) And said, and you know, and it was all, you know, why did you let him go? And I'm like, I'm not his employer, right? Yeah. You know, and so I'm putting on there. So I actually had to call the state and I'm like, what do I do with all this stuff, right? And so contracting 
over international borders, I found at least, actually simplifies a lot of things for me. And, and I found that somewhat interesting. I mean, I, I'm keeping him, right? I sent the papers back to, yeah, yeah. to Utah basically saying, no, he's a contractor. He's part-time and I don't tell him when or where to work. I don't provide him with any materials, you know, other than the audio I need edited. So anyway, but yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that way too, because a lot of countries have labor laws that you don't have to follow if you're not hiring outside or you're, if you're not hiring within the borders. And so Anyway, that that's a, just another interesting side note as far as that, that, is, that is actually that's like on uh, cruises. There's no, uh, you know, they have international labor laws for the people working them, but th- that's not much, right? Because they're all outside it uh-huh. borders. And, but that's, that's interesting. Story. I didn't realize that. I worked for a cruise oh, yeah. line in college too. So did you? Yeah. Yeah, I have some friends that work on a uh, Disney cruise and. Uh huh. But uh, they just don't have the same when right. you're out on international waters. It's not you don't have the same protections, which is interesting. Yeah. I never would have thought it. But hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one, Max. Out. Well, it's interesting too because. That's part of why freelancing or contractors, freelancers are more attractive in some ways than W-2 employees to employers is because they can get around a lot of those labor laws and labor protections by hiring a freelancer. And it's not to say that they necessarily are looking for ways to screw over their employees. What it is, is it's just there's real cost to running a business and having to you know, check all those boxes as opposed to just saying they're a contractor and so I will pay them and they will pay their own taxes. They will find their own insurance. They will, you know, blah, blah, blah. They have to check all those boxes themselves. Yeah. In a, in a previous life, I was doing IT recruiting and we had a minimum margin to hit in order for us to make uh, money off, you know, if we hired them W-2 and then there was, there was a certain dollar amount per hour that we would have to uh, account for when negotiating because um, there's costs, you know, um, taxes and insurance and things like that. Yep. Yeah. And with contractors, you don't have to pay any of that. And if you're no. the contractor, you do have to pay you that. You have to pay it. Right. Yes. You get the big bill of April 15th or hopefully you're um, doing the quarterly prepayment. Um, so it's. Yeah. That's never quite worked out for me. I've always wound up paying a big check in April. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it because it's never worked out for me either. And I've been trying to trying to get it right. And I just can't really figure out the exact amount. To, it's either yeah. too much or too little. So this is what it is. Yep, absolutely. So I don't know how we got down this rabbit hole, but yes, I think we were going to talk about how to get into freelancing yeah. Yeah. on this episode. So yeah, so Upwork, in my opinion, is kind of a crapshoot. So, yeah, I don't know. What, what's your experience? How, how did you get into this? You know, honestly, the, through a recruiter was uh, the larger 1099 uh, contract was just through a recruiter. And then mm-hmm. going to W-2 is another recruiter. Um, and then like the moonlighting side, like I said, I just found the person posting on Upwork and I kind of went around that by finding them on LinkedIn um, and just messaging them out of the blue, um, saying, you know, I saw your post on Upwork. I'm interested. 
how can I help? Let me know. Um, and that, um, I, I don't know. I, I should ask if that really helped me or not, you know, instead of just a thing on the, uh, on the list of being a person on the list of responders, I went around that a little, which I think could have helped. I don't know, but I've applied to a lot of things on Upwork that I felt that was a pretty good fit for. And you just don't hear back, you know, you're kind of throwing darts and hoping. Yeah. Yeah. So you were talking about, yeah, you found them on Upwork and then you kind of went around them to find them on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, I mean, when I went freelance and I've told this story on the show before, but it's been a few years. So I'll just kind of recount. I'd been kind of thinking that I wanted to go out on my own for a while. And I was kind of mulling it over. I was in a job that I really liked though. And so I, I was just going to stay there. Right. And to make a long story short, they hired a a marketing manager that pushed them in a direction that uh, their customers didn't want them to necessarily go in. They did not want them to go in that direction, but they wanted other things. Right. And so what wound up happening was um, the, they had customers start leaving and they were losing money. They were making money. They were in the black when I got there and they were in the red when I left. Um, and so what happened was they decided to double down on the thing that the, I'll just, it's, it's hard to talk my way around it. So it, what we did was we took in law, law enforcement uh, agency data, so crime data, we would put it on the map and we would provide tooling for law enforcement agencies. And this marketing manager decided that it would be better if we added in uh, basically a neighborhood watch portal. And so, you know, and he was thinking, you know what, this will, you know, connect the, the agencies to their constituents and the law enforcement agencies, we had just done a big rewrite and we didn't have all the features they were used to back in the product yet. And right. so, and we, now we were working on this other thing. So they started leaving the co- the company started losing money. And so they doubled down and made us finish it. And they gave us like a big bonus. Um, I got my first iPad, <laughs> right. That's part of the deal. If you finish it by this date, right. So we did a death March for like three weeks. We got it done, got the bonus, got the iPads. And then the next Monday when we went into work, we got laid off. Wow. Um, most of us anyway. So um, they kept around the, the few people that I think what they figured were, was that the people they were letting go were the people that would put up a stink to putting in more hours. And they were right. They picked the right people if that's who, who yeah. they were letting go. Yeah. Um, so I got laid off and I went to my wife and I said, uh, wife, I want to go freelance. And she freaked. Um, yep. you, know, what if, you know, what if you don't find clients and blah, 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 right? Well, I had a month's I think they gave me a one month severance and then we had the bonus on top of that. Right. So I had about a month and a half's worth of money. And so I just said, look, if we're out of money and we can't pay the mortgage, then I will go find another job. And so I was simultaneously looking for clients and employers and I wound up getting a contract and uh, it was through some people I knew. Um, And, and I was really new at it and I underbid, I bid like 60 bucks an hour which is really, really low for the kind of work that I was doing, you know, writing web apps in Rails. And yeah. all of my friends, you know, that I beat out for the contract, they're like, they're like, dude, you've been way too low. And I was like, oh, okay. So the next one I bid, you know, more than $100 an hour. But uh, my second contract came through a recruiter, actually. 
he had a company that needed part-time help managing their or maintaining their web application. So I did that for a while. And then, yeah, I just kind of worked out from there. It also helps that my father-in-law is self-employed. And so he was able to talk her through some of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was one thing that I ran into is how, you know, how do you get your significant other on board? Cause yeah, you know, it's if hard. you don't know what it's like, it's risky. It seems really yeah. risky. Yeah. I don't know if, if you had kids at the time, but I, I kids and, and that, you yep. know, ups the stakes even more, right? Like, yep. Um, yeah. At that point, my oldest was like four and we had two other kids. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's that. When I first went on a contract, the, I don't want to say argument, but the discussions that we had around that were intense Yeah. about leaving a steady, you know, W2 for, for 1099 and all the different benefits that I was walking away from. But at the time it, it, you know, when, when I did the math and I did it several times, uh, it didn't make sense for me to stay at the W2, um, position. So, yep. um, which I think in most situations, and this maybe I can, um, you can clarify, but my experience has been that you're able to make more when you just take the salary and divide it by hour and you forget everything that comes along, you're, you're going to make more doing it contract than you would, you know, and that has its W2, you get vacation time. So you have to add all that in too. Yeah. Right. But my experience, you make significantly more, um, just doing it hourly on contract 1099. And there's, there's a lot of reasons behind that. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, there are definitely reasons behind that. Um, it also depends on what you're doing, right? Because yep. you may make more per hour, but then, you know, some people wind up pulling less hours or, you know, they, they're, you know, they wind up after they pay benefits and things like that. They're, you know, they're, they're really not. I, I think there's a lot to be said for doing it. But for me, it was more about job satisfaction than it was about the money. Yeah. But that, that said, I mean, looking at the money, yeah. Um, I definitely made more as a contractor than I ever made as a W2 employee. And, you know, even, even paying my own benefits and things like that, I still made more, but I don't know that that's always the case. I've met people where that wasn't the case, but they still had enough flexibility to where they were happier in the long run. Yeah. Doing it. yeah one of the eye opening things to me was, um, I missed a call when I was on 1099, I missed a call. I was just, you know, went to the gas station or something, ran a quick errand and I came back and I was like, Oh, I missed a call. I'm going to be in trouble, you know? And it, it wasn't a scheduled thing or anything. And I said to them, oh, I'm so sorry, blah, blah. And she, no, you're a contractor. We can't tell you, yep. you know, when you have to be, we can't expect you to sit at the desk the whole time. Like you work your hours. So that was one of the most like eye opening things was, Oh, okay. So I do have a lot more freedom. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah. I'm definitely not fit to work in an office for a company ever again. Yeah. And it's funny cause uh, you know, sometimes you hit those uh, down uh, downturns in income and you know, trust me, if you're contracting, you're probably going to run into that at some point. Yeah. My father-in-law is like, well, time to go get a full-time job. And I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> that that's never going to happen. So yeah, and it for me it is. It's just the freedom, and you know, yeah, there's some stress that comes along with it. But for the most part, yeah, that's definitely the case. And so, I mean, if we're talking about going freelance, 
or going contract. Um, I mean, one of the things is just, yeah, have that emergency fund in place. Yep. Yeah. It is a big, big deal. And if you're going to go contract or freelance and, you know, I mean, my situation was a little different. I didn't choose to leave my job to go freelance, but still, if there's any way for you to do it, have that emergency fund in place, you know, a couple months in the bank. That way, if things slow down, I've never had a slowdown that lasted more than a month. That's good to know. What, um, so, so back to when, when you're starting out, I mean, the, the hardest challenge I think is to just get that first client. Yeah, first client. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. I mean, what worked out for me was networking, right? Yeah. I was in a little bit different situation because I'd been screencasting and podcasting at that point yep. for a couple of years. And so I knew a lot more people. And so I was able to go out and, you know, kind of capitalize on that to find clients. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, blogging, uh, podcasting, doing screencasts, um, doing general outreach, meeting people at conferences. Those are all really good ways to meet people that may or may not be able to point you to a contract. Yeah. And then I think, um, so in, in my situation, you know, the first contract wrapped up, which I probably just got out of luck because I got it through a recruiter and I went back to W2 mostly because, you know, it made sense that the money mm -hmm. was right, but also I, I didn't have anything else lined up. So it's, you know, I'm sure it's in order to be successful at it and continue with it, I need to do the outreach and, and get the name out there for whatever my service is. Um, yeah. So, and I think that's, it's easy when, when you have the project or whatever to say, okay, I've made it, you know, I've done it. I'll just go to another one. And then when, when the faucet turns off, it's, uh, you wish you spent more time getting your name out there ahead of time, right? Like preparing for the next one. Yeah. That's another thing that I'll just put out there is that every time that I've had a slowdown, it's cause I quit doing outreach every time. Yeah. And if I'd been doing outreach a month or so earlier, I'd have been fine. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv, and I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show, and the other one was from the Ruby community, and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show, though, is React Roundup, and every week, we bring in people from the React community, and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. And it have, it's the same for uh, podcast sponsorships too. Every right. time I have a slowdown in money, it's because I, you know, I put my, took my foot off the gas for a, couple di for a month or two, and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody doesn't re-up, and then I'm in trouble. Yeah, I guess it's just building that into your daily schedule or weekly schedule or whatever. Yep. Um, and and continuing on with that. Besides uh, finding the first client, what are the other, you know, if, if we think back to starting out, what are the other things that um, I guess maybe surprised you or... Um, yeah, one, that, one other thing I'm going to throw in there with uh, finding your first client is that sometimes... If you tell your current employer you're going to go freelance, they may hire you as a contractor. I've seen that happen a lot. Have you? I haven't seen it happen, but that's just, you know, I'm working for large mega corporations, mm -hmm. right? So that's not really an option, probably. Um, 
I've thought about approaching past smaller employers and saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm doing the same type of work that I did there. Would you be right. interested? I just haven't made that, um, I guess, engagement or reach out. And I, I don't know if they would or not. I mean, we left on good terms, um, but, you know, who yeah. knows? Yeah. So that that's one thing. Um, another thing that was hard that surprised me was setting pricing, right? And I've seen freelance calculators out there where, you know, essentially you put in your, your salary and then you put in, you know, the value of your benefits and you put in the number of days off you want. You put in, uh, you know, all that other stuff that we talked about a minute ago, as far as, you know, company providing you that you have to provide yourself, you know, taxes, um, you put all that in and then it kind of grinds the number out and says, you need to charge at least $125 an hour in order to make it. And I didn't realize I needed to do any, any of that kind of homework. And so when I got my first contract, it was for 60 bucks an hour. And then my next contract was for 120 bucks an hour, right? So I doubled it. And it was just because I had no idea. I had no idea how to price things. I had no idea what the expectation was for contracts. And yeah, you know, the company that hired me got a really good deal on my time. But yeah, that's kind of how I did it. Um, and then another thing that I'll just throw out there is related to this is that um, as I got further into my freelance career, I figured out that it was more important for me or it worked better for me to get paid up front because you wind up playing that billing game, right? Where it's, okay, are you going to pay me? And then a month, oh, you still owe me, right? And sometimes they're your current client, right? And they just haven't paid you in months, right? And so when you finally threaten to, to leave and to sue them, then they go, oh yeah, and then they pay you. And um, you know, some clients are great as far as getting you paid and some clients just aren't. And it's not necessarily that they don't want to pay you or that they're trying to rip you off. A lot of them, they just have all kinds of other stuff going on and they get busy, but you have to constantly play that game. So for me, I found that getting billed or billing up front changed the, changed the equation, right? Because it was like, well, I can't work this week because you haven't paid me yet. Yeah. So are you, and, are you, when you say billing up front, are you billing up front for the hours you plan on working or are you billing up front for the project on the per project? So there are two ways that I've done that. One is that I bill up front per week, right? Okay. And it's like, look, I'm going to get a week's worth of work done, right? That generally is going to look like this many hours, but it may be more one week and less the next, just depending on the amount of work I get done. And then uh, the other way that I did it was I would actually take the project and I would, yeah, I would bill per project. And so then it was, okay, look, we're going to, we're going to do it by milestone, right? So you pay me now for everything up to this milestone. And then if you're still happy with me, when we're getting close to that milestone, we'll, you know, then it'll be this price for the next milestone. And we can negotiate that at the time if you, if we need, right. If I think it's going to be more work or you decide that you want something different, right. Then we can figure that out. And then you pay me up front for the next milestones worth of work. And then we'll work it that way. It's harder to do with subcontractors in some ways because you, you have to balance out what they're doing and what kind of quality they're making. And you've got to, you got to make sure that the client is getting what they paid for. But in other ways, it also simplifies it because you get paid and they don't care how you get it done. So you just make sure that it got done right. So when you, when you say subcontractors, you're talking about contracting. Yeah. So I have also paid contractors to work under my contract. Right. Okay. So you get the contract and, and then you subcontract out um, yeah. 
the work or part of the work right. or whatever. And then I'm making a certain amount on each of them to pay for my costs and time and effort to manage them. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so, you know, but for the most part, when I was working on my own, it, it got a whole lot easier. Cause yeah, it was okay. You want me to do this collection of work? That's going to be this amount of money. And usually what I would do is I would actually go talk to, there's a terrific book by Jonathan Stark who used to be on the show called hourly billing is nuts. And he kind of walks you through this, but you go and you talk to him and you find out what it's worth to him. Right. And so if your project is going to make or save them a hundred thousand dollars, let's say over the next year, and you can do it in a reasonable amount of time, you know, or less that you're happy making 10 grand on. It's kind of a no brainer, right? You go to them and you yeah. say, look, you pay me 10 grand. You think you're going to make or save a hundred grand off of that. So you're going to get a 10 X ROI. You know what the budget is on this project and I'll deliver it. Yeah. Right. I guess that's to me, that almost sounds like a more, um, uh, a harder sell, but I guess when, when you say it like that, it's less risk for them, right? Like yeah. if you bill hourly and, and it takes you forever, they're going to be paying you forever. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You put all the incentives going the same direction, right? Cause you want to get it done as quickly as you can, because then you can go on to the next project. You did this 10 grand's guaranteed. Yeah. And so it's good for you to get it done as quickly as possible, you know, with the right amount of quality, obviously, so you can get more work from them. Right. It's, it's better for them for you to get it done more quickly and more efficiently because then they can start taking advantage of it now. So, yeah. Where, and, and I guess this is dependent on, but um, what you're doing or, you know, how do you get into the larger or the, or the medium size companies? Is that just all through, word of mouth or because a, a lot of what I see, you know, and that's probably where I'm looking is it's startups or, you know, someone has a great app idea or something like that. Um, oh, I love those. I've got a million dollar idea yeah. and I'll pay you equity to come work on it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, which yeah. hard pass. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. To get into the bigger companies, I found that the most effective way is word of mouth. So either somebody they know and trust recommends you or you do something else that gets you gets their attention. And I'll tell you, I actually spell out my process for this in my book, in the Getting Hired book. Um, and so you can go through the same process that I tell you to as far as identifying, instead of identifying your ideal employer, you're identifying your ideal client, right? Right. And then right. you just follow the rest of the process. So what you do is you say, okay, my ideal client looks like this. They're about this big. They have this kind of work environment. You know, maybe they follow agile development. You know, they're, they're going to pay me. They're capable of paying me at least this much, you know, on an hourly or project basis. Um, you know, they have this kind of uh, work environment. They're working on projects that use these technologies. You kind of get an idea, right? And then what you do is you start looking for companies that match that profile. So you can go to users groups. You can go to conferences. You can just start, um, you know, poking around the web and seeing who you can find that meets, meets those criteria. And then what you do is you get to know somebody in the company. And so you create your own word of mouth basically, right? So you go make friends with their developers. Um, you know, maybe you help them out with something that they're facing or you jump on a call and just kind of chat with them and, you know, you buy them, a, a, buy them lunch and figure out, you know, what, what they're about and what their company's about and get to be friends 
And then you mentioned to them, you know what, I am looking for contracts with companies that look like the ones, one that you work for. And this is kind of what we're looking for. You know, could you, you know, put in a word with your boss, you know, or the next time they're complaining about, you know, being shorthanded, you know, you could bring it up. Well, I do contract in that area and I'm happy to help or something yeah. like that. Right. And so you, you kind of work your way in that way. And that's what the book's all about. The, the part about interviewing may be relevant. The part about negotiating salary, probably less so, but yeah, the book walks you through that whole process on how to find those companies, how to find the people to connect with, and then how to make contact with them and make that work so that you're getting people's attention. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. But it's, it's more or less also the process I use for finding sponsors, right? So I'm looking for right. companies that are about a certain size. They probably have a certain size marketing budget. Um, they have products that cater to software developers or people that build apps, you know, and so I, I know who the customer is. And so then I can go find them on LinkedIn or Glassdoor or something and figure out how they fit. And then I can reach out to them and I have a whole system for finding people's emails and reaching out to them. And it's amazing how often it works. Heck, that's, that's a, yeah. Okay. That's probably a trade secret, right? Uh, not entirely. And in fact, I should probably, we should probably just do a show on how to prospect and then we'll dive in. All right. Cool. But yeah, so you, that, I mean, but I basically outlined it right there. The book just goes into more specific and concrete strategies for it. So yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. But once you, once you have your client or clients, I mean, then, then you're a freelancer, right? So once you're able to replace your income and hopefully have a little bit of money in the bank, then you just quit your job and do the contracting full time. That's the, that's the dream, right? Yeah. Eventually though, it, it kind of becomes your job, right? And so it, right. it sounds super romantic when you're in a job and then when you get there, it's like, oh, some of this is hard. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. For me, it's yeah. totally worth it because, you know, I'm, I'm here, like my wife, she went to get the kids from school. She didn't have to take my four-year-old with her. My four-year-old gets her nap. Um, you know, I, I get to work from home. I get to do what I love to do. I get to talk to awesome people like you and other people all day. I mean, it's, it's great. And so, you know, I've worked that out. Um, you know, for other people, contracting may look like going into a job every day. It's just that, you know, they're just paying you contract rate instead of a, a, a salary. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but, but figure out where you want to end up, figure out if there's a solution that involves freelancing. But yeah, the nice thing is, is if you don't want the contract, you don't have to take it. And if you're, you know, you, you, it, it leaves you with a whole lot of other flexible options. And in a lot of cases you can make more, especially if you niche down to something that's very lucrative and very hard to find an expert in. All right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds good to me. Because everyone has different situations. And yep. And if you have a specific question or situation, just shoot an email in chuck at devchat.tv and we'll see if we can talk about it on the show. Yeah, that would be, uh, that'd be good. That would be yep. uh, entertaining. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Go ahead. Do, do some picks. You want me to do the picks first? I can do that. Yes. Yes, please. Because uh, I've, I've listened to these shows so many times and then I never thought to get picks for Awesome. So for the last few weeks on all of the other shows, I have been picking Christmas movies. And uh, I don't remember what I picked on JavaScript Jabber last week because I was going to do those this week. But um, I'm just going to go ahead and wing it then. 
Um, I had a plan, but the plan's not in front of me. So the Christmas movies I'm going to pick this week are The Bishop's Wife, which is, um, it has Cary Grant in it. It's an old movie. Um, and it's not one of the better known Christmas movies. Like if you go look for uh, some of the other ones that I picked, like uh, It's a Wonderful Life or Holiday Inn or uh, White Christmas, you know, they're, they're all available on like all of the streaming platforms. This one I could only find on iTunes. And yeah. of course we have it on DVD, so we just watch it here, right? But uh, I, I, I've, I really enjoyed that movie. And basically Cary Grant comes down as an angel and he's there to help the, this bishop whose mission it is to build the cathedral in town help him fix his life and fix his marriage and fix all anyway. Um, you know, and so he kind of has to fix himself before he can build the cathedral. And it's, it's a terrific movie. Uh, just absolutely awesome. And I, I loved it. Uh, the other one is more of kind of a curmudgeonly purist pick. Um, I, I've been telling people I'm not picking anything newer than uh, 1980, but I did pick a movie that was 1982 the first week. So nothing newer than 1984 because I think my favorite Christmas movie ever came out then. So um, this one's a 1966 and it is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the cartoon, the 28-minute yeah. one um, with uh, Boris Karloff. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, heck yeah. That's, uh, that is the, the music. You, yeah. You know, you're a mean one, Minces or Grinch. I don't want to sing it right now, but... It definitely will hang up and then I'll start singing it. In my yeah, head. there you go. So Yeah, it's just, it's just classic. And, you know, they made the um, Jim Carrey one in 2000. They made uh, an animated one in 2019, 2019. I think it was last year. I think it was 2018. And, you know, they're fun movies. Yeah. And, you know, the, the one has, you know, great music in it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a Faith Hill uh, fan so 20 the t 2000 version right has has her singing in it but yeah that old version is just it's all character and it's all dr seuss and it's just awesome and they basically just stuck straight to the book and so i, I really love that so yeah i don't hate the other ones but that one just has a really special place and you know what i'm gonna throw in a third one just for fun um and this one's a musical it's scrooge the musical um, and it's got some terrific songs in it too. I think it has Albert Finney in it. Um, and I think you can stream that one on all the major streaming platforms. So yeah, it's, it's definitely worth watching. It's a different take on the Christmas Carol story, but I really, really loved it. And, uh, like the latest Disney animated Christmas Carol one, I'm sorry, but that one just wasn't good. Um, so yeah, going back to some of the classics, just anyway. So, so yeah, so those are my picks. And then, of course, I got to remind people, go pick up the book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's $2.99 on Amazon right now. And, um, yeah, it'll walk you through the whole prospecting, prospecting process. You just have to adapt it a little bit for freelancing because it was aimed more at new developers trying to get into the field and get their first job. But, I mean, it's all there, and it's not that complicated. It's just a little bit of know-how and thinking outside the box, so. Yeah, that's what I got. Brooks, do you have something you want to pick now? All right, now I got something. If we're going Christmas movies, uh, I know you're going older movies, but Elf it, with Will yeah. Ferrell is just, I watched that this uh, last weekend with my five-year-old son, 
And you know, <laughs> some of the jokes hopefully and, and definitely did go over his head, but uh, it's hysterical. I, yeah. Just him going up the escalator. Um, There's so many funny like one-liners in that. It's it's really funny. My wife does not like Will Ferrell at all, so she won't watch it. But oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. But and it, and it's not a typical Will Ferrell right. movie, like Step Brothers or or something like that, right? But uh, yeah, they that's a that's a great Christmas movie. Yeah, I, I guess that's that'll be my Christmas movie pick, and I'll have better picks next time. That's all Although good. I, I think Elf is a pretty good pick. Yeah, it is. All right, folks, we're gonna go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thanks for showing up, Brooks. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we have another co-host to introduce you to next week, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.